Well, it seems like everyone has their predictions out now for 2022. Us too, by the way, in case you missed last week's episode, well worth a listen. Uh, one area we're all going to be focusing on this year is understanding the impact of climate change. Now, we've all known about the risk of climate change for many years, but up until recently, the short-term impact on insurers was considered to be rather limited. But that's all changing now. Investors, regulators and advocacy groups of all types are shifting the focus on what changes insurers can and need to make in a typical 12-month business cycle. We're currently wrapping up our report, exploring what the options are for insurers that want to measure and share their analysis of their own physical and transitional risks and their clients in their investment portfolio, underwriting and business operations. More on that soon. But to give you a flavour of what's happening this week, I've been listening to the recording of our event at the end of last year, supported by S&P, on the topic of climate risk, the move to decarbonisation and other ESG-related topics. Well, we had some great content that evening, but I am very glad we did record it and I now have a chance to bring you the highlights but broken up into rather easily digestible chunks. Even if you were there with us in the night, and well over 100 people were, I think you're going to welcome a chance to hear this again. I certainly did. Uh, and better still, we've used quite a bit of this content to inform our latest report on this topic. Well, that's Instat London, the gift that keeps on giving. Look out for that report coming in February, by the way. But before we hear from S&P, this is how Andy Smith, co-founder of Flood Modeler Fathom, described the issues we and insurers are facing with climate change when we spoke to him last year. As scientists, we believe that as a climate warms, it will impact extreme events, and that's both in terms of frequency and severity. As the climate models are increasing in fidelity and getting better, they actually paint a worse picture of what's happening to many of the climate extremes that we experience uh, in the UK. But this whole area of climate change impacts is now no longer the realm just academics and research centers alone. We've seen over the past few years um, but financial regulators are becoming more and more interested in potential climate risk, and particularly the Bank of England. So the Bank of England, back in 2015, published a paper on, on climate risk in the UK, followed that up with the general insurance stress test in 2019. And that's now being followed by the Climate Biennial Exploratory Scenarios, or the CVES, that was published last month. It's essentially a, a climate stress test procedure. It's designed to explore the exposure of a, of a select group of banks and insurers to climate risks. More of those stress tests to come, but first on stage for our event was Rafael Zindi, Product Manager, Global Insurance Solutions at S&P. I asked Rafael what S&P is providing to help measure the climate change risk. From a climate perspective, we've built risk models that look at, um, you know, how do you analyze specific portfolios? So data sets such as TrueCost will help you analyze 15,000 companies across the board. And it will also enable you to take a view in terms of as we transition to net zero, what is that going to mean for um, you know your portfolio, your clients alike? We also drill down a, a step further. So we are looking at things like the ESG scores and you know what is the performance of companies from an E and S and a G perspective. And these eight thousand companies we're looking at across the board, some of the issues that they're going to face from you know a productivity profitability earnings perspective that's likely to impact uh, the insurance outcomes. And then finally, the fiscal risk scores. I think the future of the insurance industry is really around looking at portfolios and being able to understand from the seven deadly sins or the seven perils of, you know, weather uh, related, sea level rises, uh, hurricanes, you know, how they're going to perform over a, a long period of time. We're able to match that against a 
uh, specific portfolio. So if you're an insurer with uh, X number of companies, we're able to tell you how is that going to break down over a period of time from, you know, whether it be 2020, 2030, 2040 to 2050 as we transition to, to net zero. So you mentioned about 8,000 companies you're looking at. Is that a set of data that you are actually offering to people so they want to understand? I guess Coca-Cola is probably on the list. What's happening with Coca-Cola? They can access that. We are running a, a corporate sustainability uh, assessment for these 8,000 companies. And it's a survey that goes out on an annual basis. We look at, you know, the factors that are, are tied into the E, the S and the G factors and how that company performs. And then there's an output, which is then the data that's delivered via, you know, different mechanisms, uh, depending on, you know, who the client is or who is it we're working with. The E, the S and the G factors are, of course, environmental, societal and governance. So what are the insurers doing about this? And importantly, what data and analytics do they need? Chris Illman is head of responsible business at insurer Beasley. Now, Beasley is well known for its innovation in underwriting. Chris joined Beasley two years ago to take on this new role, and he explains what it means. What others might know as ESG, we call responsible business. So my role is really about delivering responsible business uh, across the business. I started from effectively a blank sheet of paper. So the op- opportunity there was to, to go in, understand what we wanted to do internally as well as externally build a strategy around it to develop it. And then from that, start to think about, all right, what products can we do in this space? What can we do to encourage conversations on, whether it be the kind of wider ESG scope or particular climate-related risk areas, uh, and really drive it forward and, and use that to kind of collaborate and encourage um, conversations to occur with all our stakeholders and also respond to what was seen as kind of getting increasing pressure from investors wanting us to know what we were doing in this space. And I think to be fair, probably... You know, the senior management got fed up with with answering those questions and decided let's let's bring this role from side of desk to something that's main and front and center and focused and, and build it more as a core into our strategy. And one of the areas you're looking at is the I'm gonna say new ESG syndicate, Beasley, which has got a memorable number, like yeah. four three two one. Four three two one, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> syndicate four three two one will will launch at the beginning of the next year. It rewards clients at achieve a really good ESG rating based on the S&P data for a start to provide them with additional capacity. And, and like I said, it's there to help drive drive conversations. You know, we'd be delighted in 15 years' time if all our syndicates are ESG because that's the way the market's gone. But um, in the interim, this is the kind of tool we're going to use to, to encourage and drive and have collaborative conversations with people. Chris, it might be interesting to get your perspective is from a data perspective, are there any specific data parts or elements that are missing from your workflow you'd like, you'd like to see more of? These things have grown up through the investment space for a number of years. They're focused on listed companies. The next area we're looking to target certainly is kind of the, the next tier down, the SMEs, understanding where we can get those data sets from to, to start answering some of the key questions we're getting asked. There's no point, for example, looking at the transition if you only include the top 100 top 200 listed companies in there you you've you've really got to drill down because the the cogs that drive the transition are going to be the the smaller guys the guys that are perhaps not there with the knowledge base right now on climate transition or net zero or how they get there and it's part education it's part data it's part understanding where we can fit in and support them going forward that's where the kind of area we want to help drive well that's not the first time we've heard about SME these small and medium businesses are an increasing focus on the underwriting side as a market that can benefit from more innovation. And to date, they've been a bit below the radar for some of the ESG measurements, which tend to focus on the larger companies. 
Chris goes on about another important area. Alongside that, it's also getting the right data sets that understand at a portfolio level, how do you map a portfolio from a climate transition perspective? What's our baseline with sufficient and valid data that's reliable to say, actually, we can think about setting targets as well as kind of have some confidence in the improvements that we're trying to see and trying to provide narrative um, for over time in the market. The third point Chris makes relates to the representative concentration pathways, also known as RCP. These are the future scenarios that will lead to increased warming of the earth. These form part of the Bank of England's stress test, but what are the implications? The other big questions we've got, um, as you touched on earlier, is is going down into the the kind of granularity detail of things like the Paris Climate Accords, you know, your 1.5 degree pathways. How do our clients look at that? How do we set the bar for for going forward? How do we look at building into kind of the physical models that we're seeing and and also looking at kind of liability? I asked Chris what he thought of the approaches companies were taking today when disclosing their climate change credentials. We're very aware now of greenwashing and people using disinformation to perhaps say they've got a good ESG rating, but actually when you look at it behind the surface, there's nothing there. So, so drilling down and being able to be an inquisitive as an underwriter and ask the right questions as part of our underwriting approach to uh, get answers to these questions and have confidence in what we're underwriting and ultimately start to think about, you know, how does it impact pricing? What relationships are there in particular data sets? Uh, and how can we use that to provide kind of services and future opportunities to, to our stakeholders going forward? Okay, well... Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you, Chris, Raphael. Next up was Dana Foley, Head of Catastrophe Research at Chaucer. Chaucer is also a Lloyd Syndicate and another great pioneer across all areas of insurance. I asked Dana, how does an organisation like Chaucer tackle this whole evolving area of climate change risk and risk measurement? We split it up uh, across different specialisations at the moment. So we have an ESG steering committee, that's really driving our core principles on ESG um, framework and how we view that. We have a risk management framework uh, and that those two sit sort of on um, maybe dealing with different aspects of, of the climate change risk piece. Uh, but the C-suite is involved in both of those pillars, if you will. Um, and then we have a very, very large innovation piece, which is uh, largely focused on climate change in which we have you know, people from strategy, heads of divisional underwriting heads involved. Uh, we have you know, our CRO, um, ourselves, other people in risk. One of the things actually we did on the innovation side is we've done a, a year's worth of workshops internally to address not just the issues that are facing each individual uh, insurance class from, um, from physical changes uh, to, to climate risk, um, but what we can do about it, and ultimately what we can provide in the way of solutions, uh, particularly risks that aren't yet fully evolved yet as well. Looking back to that classic Lloyd's model, where Lloyd's came from, which is, yes, on the one hand, you've got regulatory requirements to report on what you're doing, you've got your own responsibility, but actually you're looking at creating solutions for your clients or new clients that can actually help them deal with the changing landscape, whether it's physical or transition. That's, that's really interesting. And then just talking on the physical side, and your role involves catastrophe modeling. People sometimes criticize catastrophe modeling as being backward looking. Once you start looking at the forecasting, they've got more variables in there. But you know, as you look at then what you're doing, how do you move the organization forward using whether it's existing models or new models to take account of these, both these new scenarios, but also that uncertainty looking forward? That's a massive question, isn't it? Um, on the physical risk side, for instance, you could very clearly split climate risk into 
present day climate risk, like where we are now, what what things have happened, the trends that are current that you can apply in view of risk uh, adjustments and that to internal models. Some of the vendors are doing this too with climate condition models that are um, that are available. Um, but then, yeah, you have you have that total um, that other piece that's projecting forward. They need different inputs. Um, so climate conditioning could just be you take a shorter view of history. There's some pretty big problems that still need to be solved. I mean, recently research has really headed us in a good direction, particularly with tropical cyclones. With a lot higher confidence with some of the trends um, that we're seeing than we did even five years ago. But we need it for more perils. There's big gaps, uh, particularly in the ones that are most likely to be impacted. There's just huge uncertainty in, in where those uh, particular perils are going up or down or different aspects of them. So speaking most specifically about flood, wildfire, hail, those types of perils are you know, massively affected by climate change, um, temperature increases, but it's not always clear how. As you look around outside of insurance, I think insurance, we like to feel that we are quite good at modeling risk in many areas, but of course that's not the only answer. So are there any other fields that you think insurance can learn from or can even get a direct access to data and analytics that can help solve some of these challenges? It's something that um, Tom Pilt at Maximum Information talks about all the time. You know, this, this issue is kind of at the hub of lots of different industries, right? And I think it's, uh, it's a huge opportunity for insurance to, to participate, maybe show a little bit of leadership, um, particularly on the cap modeling side. Um, and I would encourage vendors to do more, probably be a bit more bold, in, in fact, in some of the stuff that they could do. There's lots we can learn from other in industries as well. Tom Philp at Maximum Information. Yeah, he's a consultancy, and uh, yeah, he's got some quite cool ideas. Actually, you know, what? A, but a piece that's been talked about a lot, but you don't see too much on it, is the exposure. Is how is exposure changing? How is vulnerability changing? How is the built environment responding to all these physical risks and it comes up a lot, but you don't really see a lot coming back in the way of like real solutions. Like how can we actually build this into our risk management um, strategies and that. Um, so yeah, that'd be pretty cool. Okay, Dana, thank you very much. Dana mentioned Tom Philp there. Well, we had Tom on our live chat event with Fathom earlier in 2021, talking about what is happening to explore modeling beyond insurance. So I went back into the archives and found what Tom had told us. This is what he said. My experience in the industry after leaving academia about eight years ago has just shown me how I think there's a lot of bridges being built between academia and the industry in this catastrophe risk and increasingly this climate risk space. But there's still a lot of holes and a lot of gaps. And I saw that there's, I think there's a big opportunity for some good private work on targeted analytics that help bridge that gap more quickly between, I would say, not only academia, but potentially model vendors and model users ultimately. But at the same time, there's also big gaps on the academic side um, where I think a lot of the catastrophe modeling that's done in the industry is really, as Andy was saying, with particularly in this climate space, is really cutting edge. Um, and a lot of the coherent flow of information from the hazard right through to the vulnerabilities and, and loss actually is missed by a lot of academic disciplines, I think. Um, and there's a potential large amount to learn there. So while I've set up a targeted private analytics company on the one hand, it also has a not-for-profit arm where we're trying to, I'd say, facilitate the um, communication of the questions and the research from the catastrophe risk side out to universities so that everybody is helping on this journey. Now back to Codenode and back to S&P. Chris Percival is head of ESG business development for EMEA at S&P. And we've been talking about physical risk quite a lot already, and most of us can visualize 
and have probably experienced the changing physical risks from the climate. But what about the other requirement from the regulator? What does it mean to understand and measure the impact of the transition risk? Well, Chris kicks off by referring to COP26, which had taken place in Glasgow a few weeks before we had held this event in November, and then goes on to talk about transition risk. Essentially, it's the transition from where we are today to net zero. So with COP just uh, a couple of weeks ago, the, the commitments are, are huge. With the, the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, 130 trillion of assets now pointing towards net zero with to 50% reduction by 2030. And I think that they're, they're going to be held accountable to that by the very many stakeholders that, that exist. So when we look at transition, what does it mean? What, 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 what's in there? Well, the answer is that there's a lot. Uh, and so the different elements that you can look at depend to a certain extent from the perspective you're coming from. The first, though, is the Paris alignment. So from an investment portfolio perspective, how aligned or misaligned are you with either two degrees or well below two degrees, 1.5 degrees? This alignment that Chris is referring to here is the commitment made in Paris at COP21 in 2015, where 196 countries agreed to take actions to limit future global warming to below two degrees and preferably 1.5 degrees Celsius compared to pre-industrial levels. And that's measurable. Uh, we, we can measure it using a, a hierarchy of different uh, methods, looking at, for example, what is the company target? And there's a scrutiny in there as to are they actually pursuing that target? Uh, what is the asset level data and what are the emissions actually coming from the assets themselves? As well as some of the, the historical trends and the forward pathway that that company is on. But it's complicated. There's a lot in there. It's about the different scopes. It's about the direct emissions, the indirect emissions, and, and, and the importantly, the downstream, the use phase, which for some sectors like autos and oil and gas are extremely big and also quite difficult to manage. But as Chris went on to explain, that's not all the transition risk is about. And if you are not familiar with the term EBITDA that Chris uses, that's essentially a financial term used to describe earnings, or more precisely, earnings before interest, tax and depreciation. There's also another aspect on transition risk, which is around uh, what we call carbon earnings at risk which is essentially the measure of the difference between the price that's paid today by a company to pollute and what it will be required to pay in the future based on the imposition of, of, of regulation, uh, regulations to price the carbon. So that is called carbon earnings at risk because essentially what we do is we measure, well, what's the balance sheet impact on EBIT and EBITDA? And you can then aggregate that up and, and look again at a portfolio level. Both of these would be most relevant for investment management. But let's also think about, frankly, there are a lot of other elements as well. What's consumer demand? How is that shifting and evolving? What are the technology trends? Uh, and those require a more, more, more detailed look, look as well. And, and, and certain specific data sets can help with that. But it also translates, uh, this transition risk translates into credit risk, for example. We actually model what is the impact on the balance sheet and how does that translate through to the credit score. This point about carbon earnings at risk was not something I'd come across before. I asked Chris to explain what this meant in practice. Take, for example, a jurisdiction like Sweden, where there's already a high carbon price. And so if you're operating in the power sector in Sweden, you're actually already reflecting the cost of carbon on your balance sheet. That same company may be operating in another jurisdiction where there is no carbon price in place. However, that jurisdiction has made the commitment to decarbonize in, in line with the, the Paris Agreement. So at some point, 
that jurisdiction for that sector will introduce a carbon price. So that, that is what we refer to as the unpriced carbon cost, which is essentially a risk that will come onto the balance sheet at some point. So we then build the what are the timeframes and what are the policy scenarios on which that might come onto the balance sheet. From the S&P point of view, are you providing consulting support as well as the data or are you primarily providing the data in other organizations that engaging with companies? We provide a, a, a lot of data and, and tools and analysis and we have technical support and, and, and client engagement desks to explain and, and work through our clients' um, challenges and, and priorities. I think that we're going to see over the next two to three years a lot of consulting in the area of corporate transitions because that's one of the commitments that is coming through with the, some of the UK requirements for companies by 2023 to have a corporate transition plan. So that's a, a huge strategic consulting opportunity as well. Chris went on to talk about a case study that S&P carried out with the Californian Department of Insurance. They're concerned about insurance being overexposed to investments in energy industries. We conducted a, an analysis of 4,000 portfolios to look at what is their exposure to fossil fuels. And it was very interesting to see in the results that, well, of those 4,000, there were about 1,000 that uh, had uh, uh, no exposure. The companies uh, uh, that they were invested in had no exposure to revenues from fossil fuels. Um, but a handful had more than 30% of their revenues from fossil fuels at their portfolio level. And so as a result, one of the guidances that was delivered to those insurance companies was to to look at reducing or divesting from those uh, as a way of managing that stranded asset risk. Well, Chris, thank you very much. Well, that's it for this episode. I hope you find that as interesting as we did. As I said, look out for our report on climate change, measuring the impact and the risks coming out in February. If you want to know more about what we're doing at Instec London, then please do find out more at the website www.instec.london. Of course, you can contact me, Matthew Grant, on LinkedIn or any of us, hello at instec.london. <laughs>